Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamberlain. Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. And Anna and I, is this our second one in a week? I think yes. it is. We're doing a really good job with recording here. Um, and uh, and we're Making on up a for real- last time, though. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, Christmas and all that kind of stuff kind of hit us. But um, we are we are really on a wonderful run of some deep thinkers engaging with seminaries, theological education. Um, we're really really excited that we just had some really rich conversations here recently. And so we're going to keep doing that. And we have a wonderful guest today who has done a ton of work around um, environment, Bible, ecology, agriculture, and scripture. And so we'd like to introduce our list, our listeners to Prussian Burroughs. Prussian, it's wonderful to have you on the pod today. Thank you. And a little bit about you, and you can fill this in. Um, the more I read your bio, the more I realized we were kindred spirits um, doing biology and Bible in undergrad and then going to seminary. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about that. But uh, Prussian fell in love with God's word and creation um, growing up in Northeast Ohio, um, grew up on a farm. Uh, what kind of a farm was that? Well, at first it was kind of a gentleman's farm with a few horses. I had rabbits and sheep. My dad eventually got into dairy farm and, and had oh, we're dairy farmers too. Oh geez. We're going to do a lot of this today. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then that was too intense because he was also a tool and dye machine uh, shop owner. And so then he transitioned into beef cattle. Ah, very good. Very yeah. good. And so with some crops, but with both of those. Sure. And so that's a little bit of your background. You go to undergrad, again, studying biology and Bible, um, and then getting uh, MDiv and a doctor of theology from Duke Divinity. Mm -hmm. And you're currently an assistant professor of New Testament, and your aim and goal is to help people live gently in and with our earthly home. And so, um, so yeah, so tell us a little bit about, um, of course, Northeast Ohio, but tell us a little bit about your geography. That can be the land, food, culture, people that have shaped you. Well, um, so yeah, Northeast Ohio between Akron and Canton. And this was uh, the people, the, the land that was um, cared for by the Shawnee and Erie people a long time ago. And those folks were um, taken forcibly by, from their homes, along with other Native Americans who had been displaced to Ohio from the East and North and South, to Oklahoma. Um, I'm... I'm a descendant of Cherokee, you know, just very small percentage of me, but um, there's, there's that connection. But my, my family, we lived for a good portion of my life on um, 13 acres. And it was, there was a hill, quite a, a large hill, and that's where our house was. And from that hill, I could look down, look, look out across beautiful sunsets, see the, the gently rolling hills of Ohio with some trees here and there and fields. And then we also on that um, property had a, a lowland and it was a slightly wooded deciduous lowland area and it had ponds. And so like in the summer, I would enjoy just going down and sitting in those trees, smelling the, the algae smell of the pond, you know, um, just that richness and, and beautiful smell. I would enjoy hearing the spring peepers and the crickets and bullfrogs and katydids. 
um, at the pond. I'd, I'd make little forts out of fallen branches. And um, my, my family did not raise me Christian. We, we were just kind of Americans. <laughs> um, and my, I had quite a few friends throughout later elementary and middle school who were Christians and they would invite me to church sometimes. And eventually I became a Christian in, in ninth grade. Um, so after being in Northeast Ohio, uh, I went to Southwest Ohio and went to college and that's where I had my first opportunity to really get into nature as like an adventurer. Mm. <laughs> so I became good friends with backpackers and rock climbers and mountain bikers. And I enjoyed those sports tremendously. And so we would get outside after class or on um, spring breaks or whatever. And then the sort of most dramatic change of scenery for me was when I'm after college moved to Tacoma, Washington, and a few months after that to Langley, British Columbia, where I did a master of linguistics and exegesis at Trinity Western University. Um, anyways, that there, that was just a completely different environment with those rich, uh, temperate rain, rainforests, you know, just the, yep. the conifers and the, the smells, the, the huge banana slugs. Um, <laughs> That's it, my childhood er area. Oh, okay. <laughs> Especially the banana slugs. Yeah. Yes. You, yeah. And you come across one of those on the trail and you're like, I'm glad I did not step on that. <laughs> yes. Yes. And yeah. So, I mean. And I'm glad if I did, I had shoes on. <laughs> you could see the slime trail, you know, it's amazing. But so like, the mountains there, um, sometimes I would get to go backpacking more in the alpine le level areas that weren't as um, wet. And so that dry conifer pine smell, I mean, just uh, smells are really strong. Yeah, mm -hmm. that smell, you know. Um, so then at, a few years later, uh, my, um, well, I moved to Durham, North Carolina. To, to go to Duke. That's where I met my husband, Brad. And after our MDiv together, we went to Atlanta, Georgia, and he, he started his PhD in ethics and society at Emory. Um, during that time, I'll just mention, I got to work at a, at a large church as the local missions coordinator and um, you know, got to work with lots of nonprofits in the area. And then after that job, while we were still in Atlanta, I worked as an interim associate director of Georgia Interfaith Power and Light. Mm -hmm. So I had already, I had already been interested in ecological issues, you know, so in undergrad for a summer, I did a, a, an intensive at Osable Institute, which is kind of a Christian environmental studies institute in Michigan. And so I was already, you know, concerned about God's creation. And I would say, just as another side point, my seventh grade life science teacher really planted the seed for that. Hmm. And I, you know, I just want, if, if there are teachers listening, especially teachers of young children, you can have such a profound impact on your on the people that you're you're getting to spend every day with and mm -hmm. who annoy the heck, heck out of you but what well, <laughs> you're you're pouring into them so anyways 
Um, so we lived in Atlanta and then we went back to Durham and then to Berkeley, California, and there enjoyed the, the mountains and the ocean, the eucalyptus trees in Berkeley, and um, then back to Ohio. So it's been a bit of a journey. I think like many of your, your, the people that you've interviewed, I've been blessed to experience a lot of geographies. Yeah. Um, I think in the South, that was a real um, change for me to, especially culturally, to experience that difference too. Yeah, it's something I, I feel resonant with and, and many of our guests as well of that it isn't one single singular geography that shapes us. Um, and I think even for those who, you know, like thinking about Sam and Wilson and others who maybe even have returned to the geography that they were raised in that um, even in college time or trips or, you know, that we are, we are shaped mm -hmm. by the, the variety of, of places that we engage. Um, so I heard a thread throughout your story of um, an appreciation for the land and for the specificity of the mm -hmm. smells and the banana slugs and the bullfrogs and the, the particularities of, of land. Um, and then, of course, I also heard a bit of this beginning of a thread of your spirituality and your religious life. Um, and I'm curious, particularly as a New Testament scholar, um, how do you wrestle with the history of the land and the history of the biblical text, um, particularly around places um, like the land that you're on right now, where the indigenous um, peoples were removed from it, and Christianity and the Bible had something to do with that. Um, we, you know, it's the, all three of us on this call, you know, I think can own like the Bible has been used as this oppressive and um, destructive text. And, not but, but both and, there is a possibility for the Bible to be used as a liberative and regenerative text. Um, and I'm curious, how, how does that, um, come into your thread of your own story and how, how are you wrestling with that these days? Yeah, that is such a, a difficult, profound question. And um, so I don't, at the moment I can't necessarily, well, so you said in my particular story. So I, I will say it has occurred to me, I wonder if, any of my Native American ancestors had been forced into the schools and, you know, taken from their families and forced to basically lose their Native American culture and language and be forced to kind of become more white or American in, um, in the understanding of that time. And so I, I have thought about trying to do some research into that, to kind of see that pain and recognize that pain. Um, my, I, my mom was raised by her grandmother and she's, she's the one who is part Native American and she was extremely strict and kind of like a kind of puritanical. Mm. And 
I just wonder about her story was, and she was also very, she was Christian. She read the Bible every day. Had she been colonized, mm-hmm. you know, I just wonder. So anyways, so that would be a personal wrestling with this. Yeah. But as, as far as um, with the scriptures, I think a, a lot of how I focus on this is that we are thoroughly sinful people and we're caught up in greedy systems and greed in many ways has driven colonization and at times co-opted the church to bless it. Now the church and Christianity certainly um, had its own impetus in this and people were, were misguided to, to understand, you know, people of the different races or pagans, you know, these other people as, as enemies and, and to, to be conquered and subdued and changed. Uh, and, and that's just wrong. Um, I don't think that that is something God and Jesus Christ intend for us, even though we could look back to the book of Joshua and see that it seems as though from that book, God had commanded God's people to go into Canaan and, and wipe out other peoples. Um, but there are, there are certainly other ways of reading that narrative um, that questions the degree to which this is a divine command. Um, okay, so, so there's that. But, but then you, you look at the thrust of most of the scriptures and Jesus's own life, and it, I don't get the impression that, that as followers of Christ, we're being called to go out and wipe out other peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus did not lead an actual revolt. He was revolutionary in ways. He was, he was pushing the envelope in many ways, but he wasn't gathering an army. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that we should be either. And he was pushing back against the empire, not forcing out those who were vulnerable right. or oppressed. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that feels like an opportunity to jump into, I mean, just this mention of Jesus and thinking about, you know, the message that he came to bring and then the church that was established in his wake. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about your work is as a New Testament professor, um, there's a lot of work in around ag land ecology that's come out of Old Testament context. Um, and, all of us have read that and, you know, and we encourage our listeners to go read all of, up, up on that too. But this New Testament angle um, is still very much being explored. And so looking forward to kind of, you, you have a couple of things I think you want to chat about in terms of particular passages that can be revelatory um, for those who want to explore Jesus's message. But before we get there for a second, just to take a 30,000 foot view, one criticism that I often hear as I try to, you know, as a pastor and as a speaker trying to share, you know, ecological concepts um, that come out of our 
scriptures, I often hear that that kind of reading is an imposition on the New Testament text rather than kind of inherent in the text itself. And like, well, you know, we get what you're trying to do, but it's not actually present in the text. And I wonder what you say to that. What, what do you respond to those who say this sort of land-based ethic is not actually there in the New Testament? So, okay, so let's just, um, some research, recent research that I've done. I decided to start looking into Jewish agricultural festivals and how those have been taken up in the New Testament. So, you know, we, we might think of the Festival of Booths in the fall, and this is kind of a, a harvest festival. And um, one of the activities that the people would do towards the end of the Festival of, of Booths was pour out water as a water libation. And the point of this was to, to definitely thank God for the previous rains that had come and blessed them in their fields and given them crops, but to also ask for the ongoing rains for the winter so that they would have upcoming food. Mm. And, and so there are subtle things within the scriptures themselves, the activities of that Jesus would have gone through himself and his people that, that we miss, that we just, we just have ignored that could shine a light on the ecological realities that these people were dealing with. These people could not just go to Walmart and buy tons of food. They were so dependent on these forces outside of their control and had to ask God for help and blessing. And, and so land, the health of the land, water, all of these things were vitally important to them and, of, and daily concerns to these folks. Um, now, Jesus in John chapter 7 he, his, so his brothers ask him, hey, you want to come with us to Jerusalem for the festival? And he says, no, 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 I'm not going to go. But then he goes later, you know, secretly. He's and, the ultimate introvert. I'm not going to the party. Oh, fine. I'll go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll just, I'll go and kind of. Um, so, so towards the end of the festival, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are thirsty and I'll give you water. Okay. This is, this is so easy for us to just spiritualize. Mm -hmm. what, what I would like to do is do some digging about, okay, when, when and where was the Gospel of John likely written? Mm. What was going on environmentally during that time? And if, if, the Gospel of John was written after the, the destruction of the temple, which is likely. These folks have no ritual to, to engage in to, to ask for the blessing of winter rains. Mm -hmm. And now Jesus has given them the opportunity to come to him. I mean, the water that they'll drink will come from the rains. Like it fills the cisterns so that they can drink, you know, like they're very dependent. I mean, at least in, 
in um, the promised land. Now, maybe other parts of the Mediterranean, not quite so dry and, and so on. But, but anyways, so like, there's probably a lot more there than we tend to think there is. And I, I, I know for me, um, part of, part of what helped bring together for me how I could do pursue New Testament studies, which is what I had been going for for many, many years, but how I could weave together my deep love for creation with that. Mm. Part of the reason I was able to do that is because I was dissatisfied with many of the interpretations I came across. I mm. did feel like they were imposing and not really reading the scripture robustly within its context, um, with as much um, rigor as typical biblical studies folks would, would give it. And, um, and so I, I, anyways, that's yeah, a long but, rambling answer. No, what I, what I hear you saying is, is it's not an imposition. It, it's not an overreading of the text. It's that we still continually underread the text. That's right. We simply have not spent like, and so we, we've underestimated the Jewishness of Jesus. The Absolutely. fact that, the, that all of these Hebrew stories are continue to be the basis for what comes in the new, like we don't get the new Testament all by its lonesome. We get it built upon this larger foundation. And so, and so to ignore that is to really impoverish the scriptures of, of Jesus and, and, and his story and the church. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. Oh, Thanks. <laughs> Can we ask you to um, do a little scripture study? Uh, I know that Romans 8 is one that you have been wrestling with. And um, for our readers, 8, 19 through 22 reads, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. That's the NRSV. You might want to bring out a different translation for us. Um, but my guess is that in my green Bible, which is somewhere around here, that that's probably highlighted green because it has the word creation in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the ways that that passage has been used for good and for ill in terms of caring for this creation and our human relationship with the creation um, is, have, again, been both problematic and life-giving. So um, I'm curious if you could dig into it a little bit more with us. And Okay. So I'll try to give somewhat of a big picture and then we'll go a little deeper Perfect. as we go. But I'm not promising anything. I, I, like I said, I'm a detail person, so I, I might just or just dive straight into the details if yeah. that's where the life is. Yeah. Okay. So, so there are several things in the text um, and in the, the context that make it clear to me and many others that what the creation that Paul's talking about is non-human creation. So let's, let's establish that it's not talking about humans and many early Christian thinkers limited, limited it to humans. Um, so I think it's non-human creation and probably not human creation involved with that. Okay, so we have 
creation eagerly anticipating this revelation, which is actually the word apocalypse. Mm. Apocalypse of technically the sons of God in, in the Greek, not children of God, the sons of God. And later, a few verses later, the Greek does say children of God. So there's some legitimacy in, in changing it in verse 19 to sons of God. But anyway, so creation's really excited about the, the upcoming event of God's people being revealed. Okay, mm. well, what is that? Well, most likely that's the resurrection. Jesus has been resurrected. And in Jewish thinking, the resurrection was going to be one time and fully corporate, you know, everybody. But this weird thing happened and Jesus is the one who's raised. And now the rest of humanity is waiting to be raised. Okay, so creation's waiting for this event. And then Paul explains, well, let me see. Remind me to go back to um, talking about sons of God. Okay. In the context of, of empire. Okay. Um, so, so then Paul's, Paul says, for creation was subjected. Why is it waiting so eagerly for this apocalyptic event? Because it's been subjected to frustration or futility. Um, you could translate it either way. I understand it as a frustration of um, it has it has been affected negatively by from Paul's perspective Adam's sin that that this, that the creation somehow is not able to function in the in the ways that God had intended mm -hmm. it's not able to pursue the fertility and richness and diversity that God had created in Genesis one. Um, so it's been subjected, um, but it will be liberated, mm. will be freed. And the, the phrase in, in the NRSV of it's going to be liberated from its bondage to decay. Mm. I think that, um, that is a, an overly narrow translation. So when I say decay, what do you guys think of, Sam, Anna? Oh, decay, I'm, I'm going right to the compost bin. And see, so that was, like, <laughs> that's where I was going to, but... And uh, see, I knew if I didn't get there first, you were going to get there. So yeah, I'm going right to the compost bin. I'm watching stuff get moldy. I'm watching stuff ooze. I'm watching previously beautiful vegetables turn into mush. Yeah. Yeah. But then I'm also going to the compost bin. I'm going to keep going with it. So probably the like the right answer is like something that just looks like it's dead and gonna you know slime away mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but take us to the compost <laughs> yeah so so i mean um so of course we know scientifically we we need decay we yep. need decomposition um in order you know for nutrient recycling um but un decay was often understood negatively you know very much like we we grow old our bodies stop working and we die and decay and and that's happening for creation too so is there much that you can do to prevent that 
to liberate creation? I mean, is there anything you human can do to prevent creation's decay? Keep trying. It doesn't work. Yeah. Doesn't no. Seem, no. Yeah. No. And of course, you know, there's a whole industry, a beauty industry and, you know, surgery industry to made to try to keep us from growing old and decaying, but it's, it's just not working. Well, so, so this, this narrow, narrow, narrow understanding of this particular word has prevented us from seeing any human agency in this verse. Mm-hmm. Liberation, according to this, this particular reading in RSV, only comes because of what God does. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, this word, the underlying Greek word for decay is phthoros. And it actually is, is, has a much broader semantic range than this English word decay. Decay is this pat well, it's not really truly scientifically passive because there's lots of microbes, but it appears to be a passive process. It's a natural process. Mm-hmm. But the, the Greek word actually means much more than that. It's destruction, it's death, it's murder, it's bloodshed. It's used in these much more active, agential ways. And so if we understand Paul to be saying creation is enslaved to destruction, Mm. but will be liberated, um, let's see, for creation is, is, um, for creation will be liberated from its slavery to destruction with the glory of the children of God, or, you know, kind of, in, in connection with the glory of the children of God. If, if we see that, now there's some room for, for human agency. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that Paul intended there to be that room for human agency. He's, he's spent a lot of time in Romans 5 creating this narrative or you know, retelling this narrative of creation that human sin brought in this human transgression brought in slavery to sin and death. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection frees us, liberates us. Same words, same terminology Paul uses in eight in chapter eight as he uses in five. Jesus liberates us from those slaveries to sin and death. We know from Genesis 3, and then also as the story unfolds in Genesis, Genesis 6 especially, where in the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew, the, the translators used uh, the, the verb that Paul uses as decay or destruction in Romans. I mean, it's the same word group. So when, when God sees that the people had destroyed so much on earth and that God would choose to destroy the all living things through the flood, like we have this story of human rot destruction. And of course there's other actors, there's the angels, there's animals, there's other actors causing destruction, but humans are a big factor in the, yeah. the scriptural narrative. And, um, 
And I think Paul sees that. And he also sees that, that when humans are fully glorified, when they're finally and fully freed from sin and death, creation will be able to enter its liberation too. And so do I hear this? So, I mean, I grew up in a tradition where it was, you know, we're all going to leave this and we're all going to be sucked up into heaven and all of this is going to be destroyed. But what you seem to be laying out is that that is, that is the completely unbiblical notion that as our, as our glory, assuming we're the children of God, you know, and glory meaning life, meaning, you know, experience of God's goodness, as that is revealed, that almost automatically has, ramifications for the land for creation and so if that's not happening then we haven't discovered our life yet it, am, I, am, am, am i hearing that that like these two things either go together or they they are liberated together or they are destroyed together right right yes yeah okay, i mean <laughs> i mean yeah so so i and i would just say by god's grace and god's providence um sure. they'll, they'll sure. be liberated yeah. together um yeah. But the scriptures clearly lay out how humans affect and, and negatively, negatively affect the, the land and the creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we are in the process of destroying it. Are we going to begin alleviating its destruction? Not that we're going to be the liberta- liberators like the the big L liberators. We need God to do some, some amazing stuff. But I, so, so if I could um, read, read a little excerpt from, so I'm hoping I'm trying to get my first book published and it's being reviewed right now. And, you know, it's such a long, drawn out process the two of you. But, <laughs> but it the title might end up being something like creation's expectation and the glory of god's children um and and let me just kind of show you how the logic that i see of connecting romans 6 with romans 8 so following the logic of romans 6 as we flesh out the implications of Romans 8, 19 through 22, we might ask, since the spirit of life has liberated people in Christ from their slavery to the law of sin and death, that's Romans 8, 2, shall they continue in sin and death by enslaving the rest of God's creation to untimely destruction? And hopefully you can hear the echo do we continue to sin even though we're in grace? You know, um, yeah, I, I'm blanking on the exact wording, but I think you know what I mean. Do we continue in our sinful, destructive ways because we feel we're just liberated from all constraints? And, I, and yeah, and and I, I to go back to Sam, what you were saying about my eschatology. You know, there are different eschatologies in depicted in the scriptures. Some do look like the earth is going to be destroyed. 
you know, the heavens will pass away. Yeah. The earth will be no more. Um, but then there are other depictions of the earth being restored, renewed. Romans 8 is definitely one of them. And even the end of Revelation, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down to earth so that God can dwell with humans on earth where there's a river and trees and all kinds of good earthly things. So I think that we have gotten our pictures of heaven and everything like this eschaton completely wrong when we think of it as, as um, unearthly. Mm-hmm. Now I may, I may edit this question out. So I'm going to give it a second, <laughs> but I'm curious then, could we talk then about the destruction that we're experiencing right now through climate change, through um, soil degradation on and on and on. Can we talk about that as an eschatological event? Like, are we living into some of that currently? So you're, I think you're hinting at like the tribulations maybe in revelation of, of like this idea. I I don't want to overdo it. Like I, I don't want to push it too far, but just as, as someone who's helping people understand how to live in a climate change world, like and where hope comes from, to say that, to say that this destruction is, it's not fatal. That we still do have hope that God is setting things right. Okay. Um, okay. That's that's kind of that's that's the question that I'm that I'm I guess I'm hinting around. Okay. Well, and I, the way I kind of was understanding it at first is almost the fatalistic view of. Well, the earth, things have got to get worse. Mm-hmm. There's going to be sort of this um, unraveling of creation and destruction of creation before God decides to come back and rescue us. And I, I would not agree with that reading of it. Um, whether, whether we're able to perceive the undoing of creation right now as eschatological or eschatologically significant. I, I think I think we can. I think that basically these are wake-up calls mm-hmm. for us to turn around, turn mm-hmm. our ways, and go in better directions. And I think that there is a lot of hope. I, um, this is anticipating your final question, you know. I'm about to ask it. (laughs) But, you know, there is so much resilience in the earth and its ecosystems and living things. Mm -hmm. I mean, to think about how life can grow again where there's been a volcano or any number of things um, or to think about the genetic diversity that we have and and how we can adapt to our environments, even when there's poisons and toxins around us and we can keep living. I mean, there, there is so much hope, I think just simply in that, but I think that there, I believe God is calling us to, get on board with God's vision of a creation wide salvation, not just a human salvation. And 
Whether or not all of humanity or most of humanity will do so, I don't know, but we got to try. And, mm-hmm. and those of us who, who are Christians, I think that we're morally obligated to, to try. We, it's part of our discipleship in following Christ, who is Lord of all creation. Well, that is a beautiful note to end on. There's so much richness here. I am, I'm especially reminded as you're talking about um, how that word apocalypse, that one translation is revelation or that unveiling, that unfolding. And I often wonder if one of the ways that we can read what is happening now is that we're, we're seeing, our eyes are being opened, something is being revealed mm-hmm. that was already both revealed in, oh, I as a human being and my own selfishness and consumerism is part of this bigger problem. And also revealing those places of resilience and those places of possibility and how as part of that interconnected web of life, as part of part of God's creation, how are we participating in that for, for good or for ill, for regeneration or oppression. And um, I really appreciate you bringing that out. And I also just want to say, I, I love what we did here with the studying of a particular piece of scripture. And I thank you for bringing that to our pod and to our um, community. And my, my brain is going forward in a, oh, that would be, that'd be a great spinoff podcast, like eco Bible study. Um, So uh, we're going to have to bring you back on because we did not have time to ask specifically about the sons of God and empire, which I have highlighted. We didn't forget, but um, we'll just have to have you back on to, to ask you more about that. Um, but I do want, before we wrap up, for you to get a chance to share with our listeners how they can connect with you. I know that you've got a blog, and um, so if you could let people know that information so that they can continue in conversation with you. Yeah, I would, I would love to hear from folks and, um, and collaborate with others uh, who, are, who have a heart, heart for this as well. Um, so my blog is at a WordPress blog, Scripture, Creation, and Life, and that will, that's all one word, Scripture, Creation, and Life, .wordpress.com. And I have um, sort of different sections on that, some reflections on Scripture, and then more on more scientific creation sorts of things. And then the life section is kind of like, oh, here's some recipes or thoughts um, on practical issues. I do have, um, I've just shared a chapter that I wrote on there. My, my publishers gave me permission to share that. So you can download a chapter that kind of gives my reading of Romans and thinks about it in relation to agriculture and specifically our use of herbicides. Well, it's part of the reason we do the pod is like, we, there is this beautiful community that's out, out there and we love that we get to chat with you and introduce you to others. And so um, we need to have, have you back on because we really didn't get to the ag thing and Anna will tell you that's, <laughs> that's really my jam. So we've got, yeah, I'm sorry. we've got, all, we've got plenty to chat about over, over the course of the next couple of months. But uh, we look forward to our listeners getting to know you a little bit and connecting with you. So Prussian Burroughs, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us today. Oh, thank you.
We're excited that there are seminaries across the country who are asking these questions related to food and faith and ecological well-being. One example of this is Memphis Theological Seminary, which is currently accepting applications for the Doctorate of Ministry in Land, Food, and Faith Formation. This is a dynamic and innovative low-residency program that's open to students who are passionate about the intersections of ministry with agricultural practices, food justice, care for the land, and the role of faith communities in both rural and urban settings. If you are engaged in some of the conversations we've had here on the pod with our guests like Reverend Dr. Heber Brown and Reverend Nuria Love Parrish, these are examples of some of the conversations and instructors that are involved in this program. This is an opportunity for people from all different walks of life to come together and explore the intersection of theology and ecology of food and faith. The first two weeks residency for this new cohort at Memphis Theological Seminary takes place in June of 2020, and applications are currently being accepted until April 30th. For more information and to apply, you can visit memphisseminary.edu slash landfoodfaith. That's memphisseminary.edu slash landfoodfaith. Yet another place to go and engage in the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.